So we moved here uh, in the summer about eight months ago. And many of you said, oh, you're going to love the winters here. <laughs> you're going to love it because they're really mild. Like it'll snow and it's a beautiful snow. But within 24 to 48 hours, it'll all melt away. My wife and I were reflecting on this, and we think you're a bunch of liars. <laughs> we did, brought Kansas City weather. Yeah, this is a Kansas winter, is what this is. Um, and so you've lost our trust, and it's going to be a while. <laughs> it's going to take a while to gain it back. And you know what liars need? The Bible. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles or your Mark journals to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 this morning. We, I will be covering verses 1 through 23, but we'll take it in chunks. So our first chunk will be verses 1 through 5. But before we dive in, I'll pray for our time in the Word. My prayer I, I will base off of Paul's prayer for the Lord's people out of Colossians chapter 1. So, Father, it's our prayer this morning that you would grow us in a knowledge of your will, that we would understand with greater clarity and depth your scriptures, and that we would seek to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, bearing fruit, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, Lord, that's my prayer, that this morning you would grow us in a knowledge of your will through the scriptures, and that we would bear fruit based on your work in our lives and through our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, before we actually dive into Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, I want to set this up that in the gospel of Mark, there's a, there's a question in the background of this gospel throughout. And it's, who is Jesus and what does that answer mean for our life? In the very beginning of Mark, in the first chapter, Mark records Jesus' words. That when Jesus came on the scene, he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Loaded statement. The time has been fulfilled. Meaning, everything in the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus. And then he arrives and he says, The kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe the good news, the good news, the gospel, that Jesus, in Jesus, God has arrived in the flesh to rescue sinners, and that in him the kingdom has arrived. Now, talk can be cheap, but in this case, uh, talk is not cheap with Jesus. This is a bold statement. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. But Jesus manifests in his ministry the power and authority of this kingdom. And we see this in the early chapters of Mark leading up to our passage. That Jesus' power and authority is displayed in that he's healing people of various diseases. He has power and authority over the spiritual realm. He's casting out demons. Power and authority over all of creation. He calms the storm. Even to the point where the disciples say... Who is this that even the sea and the wind obey him? And last week as Daniel was preaching, he, uh, he gave to us the miracles of Jesus. Right? One was 
that Jesus took two fish and five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people. And then following that, Jesus walked on water. Right? So Jesus is doing things and saying things that only God can do. The crowds are increasing. As Daniel mentioned last week, rumors are flying. Who is this? Who is this man? Well, there's a group of people that we'll look at this morning that are determined to find out who this is. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the religious authorities of the day. But spoiler alert, they're not convinced that he is the Son of God. In fact, they're convinced of quite opposite, that he is definitely not of God. And so what we'll find this morning is another confrontation between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And we'll pick this up in chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? We'll pick the rest of it up in a few minutes, but let's just uh, take up this section right now. So in chapter 1, or in, in Mark verse 1, or 7, let's try that again. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, Mark tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes have traveled from Jerusalem and they have gathered around Jesus. You get this picture of them circling him. Now, don't miss the fact that they have come from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 90 miles away, roughly, from where they are right now. Because they have come, this is a serious commission to investigate Jesus. And again, it's important to know that they're not asking, wow, who is this? They're asking the question, who does this man think he is? Because he's teaching all the wrong things. He's not teaching what we teach. And he's hanging out with all the wrong people. He's hanging out with sinners. And he's gaining popularity which is a scary thing for the scribes and Pharisees because they were popular in their day as the religious leaders. A little bit about the scribes and Pharisees, that'll be important. Okay, so the scribes. In Jesus' day, they were considered the experts of the law of God. Okay, experts in the Torah. And when I say Torah, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They studied the law, they taught the law, they interpreted the law. They were the authorities on the law in their own eyes. And then there's the Pharisees. The Pharisees, their name means separate ones or holy ones. They were approximately 1% of the population back then, but highly influential among the common people. The Pharisees sought to follow exactly what the scribes taught in the law, sought to follow the law perfectly and thought that they did and looked down on anyone else who did not follow in their tradition, considering them sinners. All right, that's the scribes and Pharisees. 
Then Jesus and his disciples show up on the scene, right? And uh, you can imagine as if this was in a movie form when the Pharisees and the scribes approached Jesus. If it was a movie, you would imagine like a storm starting to roll in. Because again, they have such a dislike of all that Jesus is, what he teaches, who he is, and his popularity. And so what we have is a storm brewing. Now, what's this confrontation about? What's at the heart of it? If you were to look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, and you were to write down the repeated key words in this section, you would find that the word defiled is listed seven times. The word tradition, meaning tradition of the elders, is listed six times. And so at the heart of this controversy is the purity laws from the Old Testament, which I'll talk a little bit about in a minute. And, the, uh, and especially the tradition of the elders. And what they're saying to Jesus essentially is, hey, Jesus, we're the experts here. Not you, obviously, by the way, you and your disciples live. We understand the purity laws of the Old Testament, and we follow them exactly. Why are you not following? And that's where we get verse 5, when they say, Why do your disciples not walk walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So what's the issue here? The issue here is what does it mean to be, you could say, pure or clean or holy or righteous in the eyes of God. They thought that they were. They looked at Jesus and said, there's no way that he is and his disciples. And so what's important for us this morning is to consider where did the scribes and the Pharisees go wrong? And what's the danger for us in that, in our own hearts? And also, what does Jesus have to say to us this morning. So, what I want to do first is I actually want to back up. I want to back up to chapter 6, verses 53, on into, uh, on into chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And, and here's the question. Does anything seem odd as I read this? Okay, here we go. When they had crossed over, meaning Jesus and the disciples, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore... And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Okay. Did you catch that? All these miracles Jesus is performing. And what they notice and point out is that Jesus' disciples are eating with unwashed hands. But we have to recognize this is not about hygiene. Okay? It's not about hygiene. This is about defilement. This is all about the purity laws. From the perspective of the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus and his disciples are unclean. They are defiled because they are not following the tradition of the elders. And I'll get to what the tradition of the elders means here in a minute. I keep promising that I'm going to get to things in a minute, don't I? 
I've noticed that three times now if you're keeping count. Okay, so here we go. It's important to grasp some of the history behind the purity laws. So I'm going to quickly back up to the beginning because what I want to highlight is uh, some, some chapters within the book of Leviticus. But to get there, let's just go big picture. There was Genesis. God created everything. It's all glorious. And then he created Adam and Eve. And through Adam and Eve, the glory of the Lord through their descendants was to spread throughout the earth. But instead, Adam and Eve sinned, and what spread to the earth was sin. Did God give up? No. He calls Abraham, and he promises Abraham that through him, he will bless Abraham and his descendants. They will become this great nation, and through this nation, they are to be a blessing, a light to the world. So that's Genesis. Okay. Then we get to Exodus. I told you this would be brief. We get to Exodus and we see that God's people have indeed increased, but in the beginning of Exodus we find that they are enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. What does God do? He does not give up on his people, so he raises up Moses, and Moses leads his people out from the oppression of Egypt through the Red Sea. Where does God take them? He takes them to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God gives his people the Ten Commandments. So, what is God doing? Big picture. God is drawing a people to himself. God refers to them as his treasured possession. And he is creating in them and calling them to be a holy nation so they'd be a light to the nations. Okay. Now, the next book after Exodus is Leviticus. And Leviticus is the book that if you begin reading through the Old Testament and you want to plow through in like a year or two, Leviticus is the place where you will be tempted to bog down and just jump to the Psalms because everybody loves the Psalms, right? But Leviticus is incredibly important. It follows Exodus, and what God's doing with the book of Leviticus is there are laws about how they are to govern themselves as a holy people. And specifically, if we were to look at Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, God spells out what it means to be clean versus unclean, or you could say holy versus unholy, or righteous versus unrighteous. And the things that make you unclean, unclean include eating unclean animals, various skin diseases like leprosy, various bodily discharges, coming in contact with something that is dead, because life and dead, death were not to mix. Kind of a picture of... Israel, God's people were to have life, to be life, not to mix with the spiritually dead, right? So five chapters, chapters 11 through 15 of Leviticus are basically are all about these purity laws, okay? But what's the point of them? The point is this, it's holiness. It's all about holiness, that God takes holiness incredibly seriously, and he wants his people to take it seriously. And in fact, in, in Leviticus 11.44, could be a summary. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. So what's the purpose of the purity laws in Leviticus? It's this. The purity laws were to reveal to God's people that God takes sin and holiness very seriously. But with the purity laws, they should be able to see and understand that they are defiled, that they are a sinful people, 
that should move them to humility, which should move them to acknowledge and confess their sin and then move them to call out to the Lord and look to him to make them clean. But what went wrong with the scribes and the Pharisees? few hundred years before the time of Jesus, along came a group of people who would later be known as the scribes. In order to avoid breaking God's commands in the scripture, they added their own laws on top of the scriptures. In fact, they added 613 laws on top of the scriptures. 365 of these were prohibitions. You must not do this. And then the rest of them were commands. You must do this. Think about the weight of that on God's people. The burden of all those laws on top of the scriptures. I like how one commentator put it. They had what can only be called a passion for definition. That's a nice way of saying these dudes were very anal retentive. (laughs) They had man-made rules and were passing them down from generation to generation. And these man-made rules were known as the tradition of the elders. To be clear, they were not scripture. But the tradition of the elders, their own laws, they considered on the same level as scripture. And here's what they were doing, essentially. If you can, you know, here's the visual of it. So here's the law of God, right? We have the law of God. What the scribes and the Pharisees did is they said, we don't want to break this. We don't even want to come close to breaking this. So we are going to build a fence around this. So imagine me taking a bunch of wood really quickly, building a fence. And the goal was to prevent prevent them from getting close to breaking the law of God. And Mark brings the example in here about washings. So what the scriptures were clear about in the Old Testament with the washings is that the priests were to wash their hands before they would approach the altar in the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament to be clean, right? Again, a sign that God demands holiness, purity. But what happened is the scribes and the Pharisees said, we don't want us or any of our people to even come close to breaking this, so we're going to add our own laws. Then I read one commentary uh, that had a whole page devoted to their washing. The laws that were added on top, which included the water to wash their hands would be kept in a separate sacred jar, and they would hold their hands like this, and they'd have to have at least one and a half eggshells of water to pour over the hand, but the minute the water touched their hand, because their hands were unclean, the water's unclean, so they would have to then turn their hand over and get more water and pour it over, at least from the wrist all the way down, to make sure they were clean. Exhausting. Exhausting. So with this, we have to understand That was the culture of the day that the people were living in with the scribes and the Pharisees. And the whole reason behind these laws were for the scribes and the Pharisees to play it safe, to be safe. Let me me illustrate it this way. 
So growing up, uh, when our kids were younger, back in Kansas, we, uh, we lived in a house that had a cul-de-sac, right? And so the cul-de-sac became, for our neighborhood, it was the, basically the, the official kickball ground, right? Right in front of our house. So all the neighbor kids all the time would come out to play kickball in our cul-de-sac. One particular day, I was outside, and I was just kind of watching and listening and at one point wondering if like both benches were going to clear in a brawl over some of the laws regarding kickball. Now, that seems odd, right? Because kickball, it has, the rules are pretty basic, right? Here, I'll, I'll throw out a couple rules. and I'm looking for audience participation. Like, <laughs> it's just a fill in the blank. One word for each one. So if in kickball, you, uh, you kick the ball and it goes in the air and it comes down and it bounces before they catch it and you make it to first base, you are safe. If on the other hand, you kick the ball in the air and they catch it in the air, you are out. Not necessarily. Because there was a law that was added from the neighborhood kids that if the pitcher bounced the ball too much before you kicked it, they caused you to kick in the air, you're not out, you're safe. Okay, essentially, the Pharisees and the scribes were like sophisticated third graders playing kickball with the law of God, adding their own laws on top of it. And why? To play it safe. And here's what's dangerous. Because they were doing this, they were playing it safe, but avoiding God. They were playing... They were trying to stay safe, but from God. And, and here's the danger for us. The, one of the dangers is a wrong view of God. With the Pharisees, I, I like how one commentator put it. It was um, Sinclair Ferguson who says this. To them, the Pharisees, God was a distant lawmaker who hemmed in the lives of the people. So, distant lawmaker. And to Jesus... God was the father of those who trusted in him. He wanted his children to live in open fellowship with him. God's law expressed a father's wisdom. So what about for us with the scriptures? Um, do we view this as, these commandments, as the blessing of God in our lives to flourish if we follow and seek his will? Do we look at these as a good, wise, heavenly father instructing us? Or do we look at the scriptures at times like they are God's way of taking all the fun out of life and he is just waiting to punish us when we fail? That is a wrong view of God. It's the spirit of the Pharisee. So God just as this distant lawgiver. Another issue with the Pharisees is the wrong view of themselves and others. This is laid out perfectly in Luke chapter 18. If I can just read Jesus in another account, as he was speaking to people, he gave this parable. He says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do we fall into this trap? Comparing ourselves to others. Looking down on others out of pride. There was a pastor once that in a sermon shared a question that has haunted me ever since he, he, he shared it. He said, you know, the question we need to ask oftentimes in our lives is, who is the biggest sinner in the room? And he said, if in that moment when you ask that question, if you are pointing at anyone else, in that moment you have failed to understand the depth of the gospel. And here's his point. His point is, when we are in a situation, we are tempted, angry, want to look down at others. The question is, who's the biggest sinner in the room? And if we can look at ourselves and understand how heinous our sin is in God's sight, but that out of his love and grace and mercy through Christ has forgiven us, changes the dynamics, doesn't it? I will tell you, this haunts me in my marriage. There have been so many times where Tiffany and I are in a discussion, right? We're fighting. So frustrated, right? Both of us. But then um, this, uh, this question will come to my mind. Hey, Chad, who's the biggest sinner in this room? And if I point to my wife, it is going to be a long, hard day, <laughs> Right? But if I point to myself, what I recognize is, oh, that's right. Where have I sinned? Where have I sinned against her? Puts me in a humble posture, right? And then I can recognize if God, by, through Jesus Christ, has extended forgiveness and grace to me, can I not extend forgiveness and grace? And at the end of the day, the humility is there's something I did along the way that caused the fight anyway. Who is the biggest sinner in the room? The problem is the Pharisees pointed to Jesus and the disciples. That's who they pointed to. And it's because Jesus loved and had compassion on the unclean. Prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, all the outcasts. Oh, and by the way, you and me. That's who Jesus had compassion on. Then in verse 5, it gets personal. Verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? That's kind of like somebody coming up to you as a parent and saying, hey, curious, why do your kids act like they were raised by the devil, right? (laughs) And that's essentially, they're like, hey, Jesus, why do your disciples, why are they not following us? Why are you so out of line? But Jesus is not playing by their kickball rules. Okay, so at this point, what he does is he doesn't seek to defend himself for the disciples. He goes right for the heart. Let's look at verses 6 through 13. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father and mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So Jesus names two problems with the scribes and Pharisees here. Number one, they're hypocrites. Where that word comes from in Jesus' day, a hypocrite would have been an actor on a stage pretending. Somebody who their true identity is hidden by a mask. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah the prophet that says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. The Isaiah was talking to God's people in that day who were going through all the right motions and saying all the right things, but their heart was not in the right place. And there's this important connection between the sins of God's people in the Old Testament and the sins of the Pharisees and scribes in the New Testament. It's this, and it's laid out really well in the book of Micah, one of the prophets, Micah chapter 6, where essentially God tells his people in the Old Testament, I delivered you out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you out of slavery. I have loved you. And what has your response been? You bring all your sacrifices to my altar. You do all the right things. And you think you're okay. But, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus applies this same verse to the Pharisees in the New Testament, Matthew 23.23, when he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Okay, These are like the smallest of garden plants. But they're tithing off of them like they're going the extent of the law. Jesus says, oh, you're doing that. But, and he goes on, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. They're hypocrites. They're acting. But what they're failing to do is what the law commands. Love. Love God and love neighbor. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And the second problem that Jesus names is in verse 7. It says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then, with appropriate sarcasm, verse 9, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So, not only are they hypocrites, that's the first problem. The second problem is they are rejecting God's word, his commands, and they are erecting their own commandments, calling people to follow them, even though they are contrary to the heart of Scripture. And Jesus uses the example of the fifth commandment, right? The first four commandments are love God. The rest of them, five through ten, essentially what it means to love your neighbor. And if you're loving God, that should translate to loving your neighbor, except that wasn't true of the scribes and Pharisees. And so Jesus refers to their tradition of korban, which essentially is this. 
that if a son has a property that could help out his parents, especially in their, uh, in their older age, if he dedicates it to the temple, then the son still has use for it when he's alive. But if he dies, then it goes to the use for the temple and his parents do not have any right to it. And the scribes and the Pharisees encourage this, which at the end of the day is breaking the fifth commandment of what it means to love and honor your father and your mother. So what's the danger? The danger here is missing the heart of the law. The scriptures knew in their minds the law so well, but it didn't translate to a transformed heart. Danger for us at times is to know scripture and especially to know our doctrine. I am a reformed theologian. But does it translate to loving well? I could think about this years ago. Uh, I was in the church that I was serving. Um, I was a college pastor and uh, and there was one particular day where a group of college students show up and they brought a friend and this friend was wearing a hat, ball cap. They went into the sanctuary, right? Um, and afterwards, uh, an older man, godly man, came up to me and he's like, did you see that? I wanted to rip that hat off his head. I'm like, wow. Um, I think we might have missed the heart on this one. Right? Because we don't know this college kid. In fact, I wasn't convinced this college kid was even a believer. But the question is, what, what laws do we erect in our own lives that potentially keep, try to keep us safe, but really keep us from loving God and, and loving our neighbor well? And, and uh, the sin of hypocrisy, right? Looking one way, but not being true to the heart. It's a sin I fall into myself, wanting to look good, wanting to look good when I preach in front of you all, right? Or, or my kids, wanting my family to look so good on the outside, right? But, but God judges the heart, doesn't he? God judges the heart. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Can't be about the outward appearances, right? It's got to be about our hearts. Now, so we come to verse 14 through 23, and I'll be brief here. I'm going to read this and just make a few comments in case you're nervous. Um, Jesus is about to take an axe to the fence that the scribes and the Pharisees have built around the law. This is what he says, verse 14. He called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Key word in this section 
is not defile and it's not tradition. As I mentioned earlier, the key word in this whole section is heart. That's what the key word of this passage is. And when we think heart, don't think organ, right? Think center of our lives, what drives our thoughts and our motives. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. So the question is, what's wrong with the world? If we go big picture, if you were to ask people what's wrong with the world, you'll get a lot of answers. What's wrong is we need to progress through science and technology and education and politics. Um, That's what's wrong with the world. Or other answers could be what's wrong with the world is them. It's that group of people. And whatever label you want to put on that group of people, that's messing up the world. It's not where Jesus goes with this. Jesus says it's not about out there. It's in here. What's wrong with the world? Yeah, and yes, there's evil in the world. And I'm not saying we'd turn a blind eye to it, but where do we begin? Where does Jesus go? What about our own hearts? Listen to what Jesus names, evil thoughts. It's the bad dialogue and daydreams in our minds. Sexual immorality in the scriptures, this term would be any sexual practice outside the marriage between a man and a woman. Theft. Malachi speaks of, well, let me just, theft. Sometimes it's easy. I don't steal. Here's our danger. Malachi talks about robbing God in our tithes and our offerings. Right? So, so the question is our, our generosity towards the Lord. Okay? Murder and adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we fall into the sin of murder when we're angry at our brothers and sisters. Or we fall into adultery when we lust in our hearts. Coveting rather than gratitude and contentment. It's making an idol out of things we desire. Wickedness. It's walking in. It's loving the darkness. And by the way, we may not think we do this actively, but it's easy to do this passively with what we take in through media. Deceit. Not having a transparent and honest life. Sensuality. It's sensual greed and lack of self-control. Envy, rather than generosity towards others, it's wanting what they have. Slander, talking about others behind their back. Pride, thinking ourselves superior to others and trying to play God over our own lives. And then foolishness, pretty much any of the above, right? Jesus ends with this, all these evil things come from within, they defile a person This list is me. If you're honest with yourself and from God's perspective, this list is you. But the grace of God changes everything, doesn't it? Through Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, it changes everything. See, Jesus, uh, it's interesting though, Jesus just blew the disciples' mind because they've been under the, the reign of the scribes and Pharisees, but Jesus just blew their mind because now they're left with, we're defiled. Jesus, what do we do? Jesus doesn't answer that here. But I love verse 24. It says this, And from there he rose and went away. Wait, Jesus, don't leave. You just dropped a bomb that we are completely defiled. And Jesus arose and went away. And here's why that's glorious. Because if you trace throughout the rest of Mark, Jesus arose and went away from city to city, 
calling the unclean to himself. And he has a mission and a destination in mind in the gospel. And he gets there towards the end of the gospel where he is going is Jerusalem. If you remember, Jerusalem was the place that the scribes and the Pharisees came to destroy Jesus. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem to destroy sin. What's awaiting for him in Jerusalem? And he knows it. It's the cross. That's what's awaiting Jesus, is the cross. And what does Jesus accomplish on the cross? He dies for the sin of his people who trust in him. And he doesn't just die for sin generically. He dies for this list. For my sin and your sin specifically. I talked earlier about uh, Leviticus 11 through 15, about all the purity laws. You know what follows Leviticus 15? Leviticus 16. <laughs> it's all about the Day of Atonement. Here's what's glorious. Once a year, this Day of Atonement, the high priest, through a sacrifice, would take away the sins of the people. But it couldn't last because it wasn't perfect. You have Jesus the perfect day of atonement at the cross, paying for our sins, past, present, and future. It is the glory of the gospel that what God does is he transforms our hearts. This, what this passage is about, it's about the heart. Our hearts, defiled and unclean, but it's really about the heart of God, the heart of the Trinity, Father who sends his Son, his son who is faithful to go to the cross and the Holy Spirit who applies that to our lives so that we seek with a new power through the Holy Spirit, with a new community, the church, to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. And I want to end with just, I want to end with a quote, my favorite quote. You've probably heard, I, I haven't been around long enough to, if you've heard this in here, I'm sure you have. Pastor once said, cheer up. You're more sinful and flawed than you can ever dare imagine. Right? Okay, you're dismissed. Uh, no, he goes on to say, right? Cheer up. You're more sinful and flawed than you can ever dare imagine. But you're more dearly loved and accepted than you can ever dare hope because Jesus Christ lived and died in your place. That is the good news. That is the good news. And let's pray. Lord, I give you thanks that uh, as this uh, list of sins is named, Jesus, thank you that you were faithful to take this, that you were faithful to take the punishment for this list rather than leave us in our sin and misery and ultimately uh, in hell. So I do pray that you would help us, though, through the power of the Spirit to be able to be sobered by this list of sins to seek in our lives, not to try to live acceptable to you because you've already accepted us through Christ, but to seek to live in a, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So help us, Lord, with our, at times, temptation towards hypocrisy, our temptation to build upon your law. Help us to actually love your law, to understand it in a walk in a manner that's in accord with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.